So to start with, Nishan, how was your trip to Nepal? Oh, it was a great way to enable Ben and Victoria to see our work. The Red Cross has been in Nepal for about three years before the earthquakes hit in 2015. And so when they hit, the Red Cross was able to swing into action, uh, mobilising staff and volunteers who carried out evacuations, uh, help with first aid and search and rescue operations. And since then, the Red Cross has been helping victims of the earthquake to rebuild their lives so, and also prepare for any future earthquakes. So what kind of projects specifically did you take Ben and Victoria to see? Well, we wanted to show them the impact of the work. So, for example, they met a family who'd lost their home during the earthquake and the Red Cross had given them a cash grant and they used this to buy a cow and the milk they sold from the cow funded their children's education. So it was a sort of small injection of cash that made a massive difference to their lives. Um, we also took Ben and Victoria's to see um, a solar-powered blood bank funded by the Red Cross and this means that if the you know an earthquake hits and the electricity is knocked out, the solar power kicks in and refrigerates, keeps refrigerated the uh, precious blood. It all sounds like some really interesting projects out there. And obviously it was all ahead of their attempt to climb Mount Everest, which I believe they started earlier this year, if that that's right? That's right. Well, they were training when we... Um, they just had their first initial training in Kathmandu when we caught up with them. Um, and I know... Uh, you know, they, they knew there were challenges, but they were incredibly excited um, about their sort of dream to get to the top. And it's really unfortunate that um, during the kind of acclimatisation process, which is quite a drawn out few weeks of um, getting used to the sort of altitude, Victoria struggled a bit with the altitude and suffered hypoxia, which means you don't get enough oxygen to your body. And uh, doctors suggested that she um, not continue. And I know she was incredibly disappointed. So you interviewed Victoria after she had her attempt cut short and we'll hear that interview just after this clip which is from one of the films about their trip to Nepal all of which are now available on the British Red Cross YouTube page. One of the biggest things I've learned on this trip and I feel very, very fortunate to have been able to experience this is the fact that the way that the Red Cross distribute their support is very individualised and very specific and also very community-led. So it's not just we think we know what you need, it's like what do you need and how can we help you best? There's just so many different ways in which they work and which they spread information and provide support. And in the likes of an earthquake, you know, it doesn't discriminate. Everybody's affected and having the whole community come together and do their very best to be prepared next time is something that's vitally important. Okay, so I'm now in the studio with Victoria Pendleton. Thanks for joining us, Victoria. Good to be here. Right, so let's get straight in it and talk about Everest. Um, it's obviously been quite a roller coaster. When did you actually start the initial training for your attempt? Well, Ben and I originally decided on the challenge about two years ago. So it, we've probably been like 18 months in training in terms of preparation for the climb, fitness. You know, we'd visited um, Bolivia last summer and spent some days there climbing some of the most iconic peaks. And I'd been in the Alps with Kenton doing some basic skills training. And that's Kenton Cool. Kenton who... Cool, yes. Kenton Cool, who has summited 12 times. Uh, he's one of the official Everest mountain guides and very well known for it too. And um, I'd also been to Nepal with Ben in, in January and, and prepared through walking from Lukla, the Everest base camp trail and sort of getting a feel for the environment and kind of an idea of what to expect on the summit attempt. And after all this training, what was it like when you actually arrived at base camp? I mean, we were talking earlier and you mentioned there's a thousand, was it a thousand yes, people? Yes, that's, that's it. Huge. I mean, it's massive. It, it kind of, you can see it in the distance as you approach um, from Gorokshep and it's 
you see these tiny little yellow dots and you think, ah, it's not so big. But it's dwarfed by the magnitude of the mountains surrounding it. So you kind of, you think, oh, that looks like a tiny little little niche, like tiny, tiny base camp, cute little base camp. And you get closer and you realise how many tents there are there. And you're like, oh, that's quite a lot of tents there, actually. About a thousand people are at base camp. Um, 300 hoping to summit and the rest are people who work there who look after the camps and the Sherpas as well so it's it's spread out over quite a big distance so it doesn't feel very crowded um, but when you start walking through and you keep walking you're like are we, are we nearly at our camp yet and you realize it takes you about half an hour to get there and then there's still more beyond you it's quite something spectacular and, and to think that all the kit is transported up there every year it's crazy and so tell us about the acclimatisation process, because I think some people don't realise that you can't just you get to base camp, you can't just go for the summit. Or, yeah, what, so you usually you uh, arrive in Lukla, and it is recommended that most people take a 10-day trek to get to Everest Base Camp. That is the average amount of acclimatisation necessary for your body to adapt. And sometimes you only climb three or 400 metres vertical metres in a, in a day, uh, sometimes a kilometre. At max, a, a vertical kilometre is, is as much as you can manage. So you have to take it very, very slowly because your physiology isn't prepared for that environment. You know, the, the air is very thin and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And in order for your body to adapt, you have to stop and sort of give it time. If you continue to push and push and push every day, you would never catch up with yourself because there's a bit of a, a lag in the, in the time for your body to kind of understand what's going on and to create more red blood cells. You almost economise and a lot of strange things happen when you're adapting to altitude. Like, like for example? For example, you lose a lot of your muscle mass. Mm. So your body becomes... Um, less muscular mainly because you need to use that for energy because fat stores don't burn quick enough for the the kind of the difficulty of existing at altitude the amount of energy required you lose muscle first and I think for the average stay at base camp of six weeks people lose a third of their heart mass which is quite interesting so it's not unusual for people to use, lose several kilos of body weight. And so, when, so you're at base camp, but you go up to camp two, don't you? And yes. then you come down. So. so what happens is when you get to base camp, you usually spend a few days there just getting used to the, uh, the altitude. And then you do something called a rotation, maybe three. Some people do even five rotations to prepare for Everest. And this is when you kind of sort of first go to camp one and camp two and then you go back down to base camp and then you go back up a few days later and go to camp three and then you come back down to base camp and you kind of each time push it a little bit further to try and prepare yourself and there's lots of technical challenges from base camp so it's not something that can be rushed um, in terms of skills but also in terms of your your physiology and your preparation of your body and so when you get to camp two how high is that so camp two is um is about 6,300 metres. So it's it, it's starting to get difficult. It's not a level that you should require oxygen at. Uh, usually from ca above camp three to camp four, that's when people usually are on oxygen and from camp four onwards to the summit. And camp four is basically a sort of, you just stop there very briefly. You don't really yeah. stay for very You long. basically don't want to stay at even camp three for more than a couple of days because it's just too hard on the body. And so tell us what happened when you were on so, yeah. these rotations. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, I should say, the weather has been excellent this season in the Everest Base Camp region. And the, and the, um, 
when we arrived to base camp, we heard that the Sherpas were always fi already fixing ropes up to Camp 3, which is really early because the weather's been clear, it's been still, um, the ice seemed to be fairly stable, the ice falls, so they'd got on and done it. And everyone was expecting a really early summit, so perhaps two weeks earlier than expected. Two weeks earlier than I expected, anyway. And so the first rotation, we kind of got onto it straight away. Unfortunately, when I got to Camp 2... I started to feel a bit off colour and I didn't think it was that bad. Apparently I was quite uncoordinated and I wasn't speaking very much, which is unusual for me. And uh, I just had a cracking headache that just just was so persistent all day, all night. And uh, they suggested that I go on oxygen to help alleviate it. And it did help, but they were also like, well, you shouldn't need this kind of assistance at level two, at camp two. They worried as you get higher. You, yeah, Yeah, they were concerned that when I got beyond camp three, then I would really be in trouble because relying on it that early on, um, you know, kind of is, is a warning sign. Yeah, so it's a tough decision. Did you talk to doctors back here or you've been talking to... Oh, I spoke different... to about five different doctors, <laughs> kind of hoping that one might come up with a different solution. But the overwhelming kind of opinion was well you need more time to adapt you need to do another rotation or you need to spend a few more days at base camp and try again or you need more time and I was like but I don't have time because right, the, the summit, great. Yeah, the summit yeah. window is early and everyone was pushing to go early so I couldn't squeeze in an extra two weeks and stay on schedule so I was like well I can't do it then can I so it was oh, it really a tough decision it was a really tough decision I mean I would have loved to have been able to do it. I would love to have had a bit more time to do it. But, you know, sometimes there's only three or four days window when you can summit the mountain a year. And I was going to jeopardise the whole team's chance of making it if I'd continued. And they couldn't stick to my time frame. So I had to accept that had to let them go and yeah, do so it without me. Yeah, a really me. brave, generous decision. Well, but, but not, listen, <laughs> yeah, we're really yeah. disappointed for you. But oh. at the same time... The amount of sort of awareness of the work the Red Cross has done just by, you know, your attempt is just yeah. incredible. We're, we're grateful for that. And also oh. if you inspired others, you know. Um, but just st sticking to the, our work, earlier in the year when you were doing that training um, with Ben, we went to see some, some projects in Kamandu. How was that for you? I mean, it was probably the most enjoyable part of the trip. Can I say that? Um, I, I think I felt very honoured and very lucky to been able to experience firsthand what the Red Cross do in Nepal and and it's obviously a country that has benefited massively from the support of the British Red Cross um, after the earthquake in, in 2015. It's still very visible when you visit Nepal, the, the damage that the earthquake has created and, and also the fact that they're still very much rebuilding their lives in a lot of places and how the help of the British Red Cross and what they do you know, is fundamental in people regaining their lives and their independence and and everything about, you know, what they had before. They couldn't do it without the help. So there was the emergency response, but we also met um, beneficiaries that's been helped to exactly, as oh, you say, rebuild their so lives. Is there, yeah, is there someone that stands out or a moment of the trip? Um, well, I mean, gosh, there was, it was, there were so many experiences in, in those few days that it's, uh, it's really... I mean, every single project that we visited was really, really interesting. I think meeting Masali, who um, 
lost her home and water source in, in the earthquake and she kind of welcomed us into her home, um, which is very humbling because we're a bunch of strangers to her. Yes, we're wearing a red cross and for that reason she was happy to invite us into her home and show us her, her um, the garden plot she had, which was part of her income and she was the sole breadwinner there because I think her husband had a suspected stroke so she was looking after somebody as well so she had somebody who was dependent on her and her income and you know growing plants requires water and especially difficult when you're on the side of a mountain so she was explaining to us that when the water source was lost she was having to walk maybe three hours to get water up and down in this this kind of copper container which I don't even know how she lifted in, in itself but she's quite a small woman wasn't very she? very yeah petite lady but obviously had no other choice because she wouldn't be able to have a business she wouldn't be able to have an income if she didn't put that work in and the fact that the, the water source was reinstated and it was available to you know to everyone in the community just allowed them to continue with their lives and I, I don't think it's hard to imagine how she would have continued that kind of physical effort trying to support her her husband and her herself. husband had a stroke and he, yeah. so the Red Cross put a tap in right yeah, by her house. Yeah, it was so they? close yeah. to her house. It was maybe 50 yards or so from her house. So she was she was able to to sort of get on with, with her life and that's... Yeah, I know, I know you bonded quite with um, Garn, the uh, builder. <gasps> oh my gosh, I loved that so much. So Garn, she was, um, she was, she'd been trained as a a, well, a, a foreman, really. Um, so she was a labourer, which apparently is a very common job for women in Nepal, but not many women actually learn how to build or run a building site or, you know, a house build. And uh, she'd been in a train... She'd been trained because of a Red Cross grant, so she was able to, to learn the skills to be able to, to actually build for herself. And she'd built many properties, and she was... Uh, building on she was on site and she let us have a go as well mix some concrete laid some bricks yeah I she taught I was you how to better do <laughs> than ben i'm not gonna lie slightly less messy than, than ben on the building site um but it was really nice to to sort of meet someone who was independent and the really strange thing that struck me about that is she was i think proud that she had the skill but also she was very kind of humble about it and it's very strange because for me to see a woman who's got a job like that who's earning has earning potential beyond you know the norm you know as a labourer well I think after she did the skills training her, her income doubled didn't it so oh. the Red Cross training helped her become a supervisor unbelievable yeah. as you know a really strong powerful woman and, uh, and I thought I mean I thought she was amazing really amazing really resilient and inspirational I mean, more women like that taking control of their of their income and being able to help the community real rebuild houses which were earthquake proof. You know, she was the skills that she learned helped provide homes which weren't going to, to you know, to fall down. And was there anything that you found out about the Red Cross sort of during the trip that you hadn't known before that surprised you or something? I think one away. of the biggest things for me was, I think, how much education goes on with the volunteers in terms of preparation. Um, it's not just about people diving in to, to kind of in an emergency situation to help, you know, provide relief. It's about educating people for the future so that they are more prepared next time. And for me, I think meeting volunteers who were so passionate about what they do and so, um, you know, 
grateful that the Red Cross allows them to be like an upstanding member of the community with life-saving skills. I mean, that's quite incredible. Proud to wear the Red Cross jacket that they're identified by, by the fact that they are trained individuals who are there to help the community. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a certain pride in that, which I think really shines through and something that you can only be impressed by. And I mean, I'm impressed by you. I mean, I think most people, if we'd won a gold Olympic medal, we'd sit back with a gin and tonic and a big pie. But you <laughs> then became like an am- amateur jockey. You've tried to climb Everest. What's next? Victoria? Motorsport. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I'm just about to get my motorcycle license. Fantastic. And uh, there's a few other things happening as well. So I'm okay. going to try something new. You won't keep me down. I'm going to stay busy. Yeah. But I think one thing's for sure that I think my experience with working with the Red Cross is something that's really given me an incredible personal experience and understanding of a charity that I really hope I can continue to support in the future and do whatever I can to help. We'll be delighted for you to do that. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you.